So chapter 8 of Hebrews is uh, the great chapter of Scripture on the, on the covenant, the new covenant. And we're spending three weeks looking at this new covenant. We started last week, the first six or seven verses. We're picking that up today. When you think of a covenant, what do you think of? Uh, we don't use that word a lot, I don't think, in most of our vocabularies. But uh, when we think of it, uh, I might think of the covenant that I have in my subdivision. We have a covenant we're supposed to agree to and sign when we come to the subdivision where I live. A lot of you have that kind of thing. In our covenant, it says things like there, we're supposed to have two trees in the front yard. Uh, we're supposed to not park RVs uh, on the street or in our driveways. Uh, we're, we're not to, uh, uh, we're to clean out the water ditch that's behind our houses, keep it out from debris, and we're to pay an annual fee. Now, in all reality, nobody seems to care about any of those uh, laws except the annual fee. They're very much into the annual fee. Uh, they want you to pay that or they'll put a lien on your house. And so we have to do that every year. And that's mainly to take care of the pond that's in the rich section of our subdivision where Mike and Virginia live. And uh, it really doesn't help me a bit, but I have to pay my money every year to keep that cleaned up and fixed up. You might think of a marriage covenant. Uh, when you uh, did your vows and you come up here and, and you say, you give your covenant to one another, that you're before God and, and one another and to the other person, you're making various promises, uh, that is the covenant. I wonder how many of you can even remember what you said that day, you know, and, and many times we don't. And many times people break those covenants and they don't keep those vows, sadly, and yet those are the things we're promising to one another. That's a, that's a marriage covenant. Uh, the Old Testament people, the Jewish people, when they thought of the covenant, they thought of the various covenants uh, that were given throughout the Old Testament. Uh, these covenants were with the people of God or uh, with the nation of Israel or both, and there's several of them throughout. There's two different kinds of covenants. There's conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. The conditional covenants have a, uh, uh, a criteria. The, other, the people, God made a promise, the people had to also make a promise. If they didn't keep their promises, then the, then the covenant was broken. Uh, that was a conditional promise. There are several promises that are unconditional. It didn't matter whether or not uh, you kept your word. God kept his. We'll see a, a couple of those here in just a few moments. And so there are these various covenants that go through the Old Testament. There's at least eight Old Testament covenants that we find uh, there throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament in particular, that uh, we could mention. But there's going to be six primary ones, six very important ones I want to identify today. And uh, I want to do two things with that. I want, to, I want to go through those covenants quickly. First of all, uh, so that you know what they are. They're not throwaways. God has them in His Word. We need to know them. And they also, they kind of like an index of the Old Testament Scriptures. If you know where the covenants are and what they mean, even, even just a, a cursory understanding of them, you'll understand much of the Old Testament. And I thought about putting up on PowerPoints the uh, Scriptures I'm going to read here. But I thought, uh, well, doing it this way, by going, actually looking at the passages, you'll know where they are, and it'll give you a good flow of the Old Testament itself. So we're going to go back to the very first chapter in the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to identify very quickly six different covenants that God has given us in the Old Testament. The first one is called the Adamic covenant, a covenant made with Adam. And uh, we find that, first of all, in chapter 1, verse 26. It says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of 
God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gives a mandate to Adam and uh, Eve eventually concerning the earth. But then drop over to chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17 and see the condition. This is a conditional covenant. God made a promise. The people of Israel had to, uh, or not, the, Adam and Eve were to keep that promise. And here was what God said in verse 16. The Lord God commanded man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So the Lord gave them this marvelous garden of Eden, this place of, of, of beauty and wonder, and told them to subdue the earth and rule over the earth. And if, and, but the one thing they could not do was to uh, eat of a particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They broke that contract. They broke that covenant. And when he did that, so, they died spiritually. They eventually died physically, and they brought sin upon the human race. And all the messes that we see all over the world today go back uh, to the root, to this root of the sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve breaking that covenant. The second covenant is chapter nine of of Genesis. That's the covenant with, with Noah, the, the Noahic covenant. Chapter nine, chapter nine, verses one to eighteen is the covenant. But I'm going to just read a couple of verses here. If you go over to uh, verse nine of chapter nine, he's, this is after the flood. And the Lord says, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood, neither shall they again be a flood to destroy the earth. So God made a a promise, a covenant with Noah and to all that follow him that there would never be a a worldwide flood once again that destroyed uh, the, the world and the human race and all the animals and so forth. That was God's promise. It's an unconditional promise. Nothing's going to break that, that promise. God is going to keep that promise. And then we go over to chapter 12 of Genesis, and we come to one of the great covenants that do, does affect us very clearly. And that's the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is actually uh, repeated several times in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22. Uh, God speaks of it often in this. But we're only going to look at a couple verses, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Covenant that God made to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. To the land which I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I will, I will bless you and make a, your name great and so shall you be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you I, and the ones who curses you I will curse. And I will be, and you will be all and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless, uh, first of all, that a, whole, a, a nation would come from him, from his descendants. He would have a great nation. And that he would bless all the world through Abraham. And that's basically on a spiritual level. That, that covenant is still in effect today. That covenant is still there God has never reneged on that covenant. As a matter of fact, several epistles, portions in the epistles make a big argument that the, the law of Moses did not replace the covenant of Abraham. And so it's a very important covenant, and it's an unconditional covenant. But now we have a conditional covenant with the Mosaic covenant. Uh, Genesis, Exodus chapter 20, we have the giving of the law. You should probably know that's the Ten Commandments there at that time. 
Uh, you can always remember, I, I do this little mathematical ditty in my head that probably makes no sense to anybody but me, but I can always remember where the Ten Commandments are because it's in the second book of the Bible and it's in chapter 20. You divide 20 by 2, you get 10. Ten Commandments. Got it? You'll never forget that ever the rest of your lives, right? All right, so if you don't know where the Ten Commandments are, you do now. It's in Exodus chapter 20. But I'm not going to read that. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And I have no mathematical ditty for Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, Maybe one of you math people could come up with something later and I can get that from you. But here we have some of the conditions that God gives to Moses uh, during this time, the people of Israel. Deuteronomy is, is not a second law, but it's a re- repetition of the law. Moses is about to, to, to go away. He's about to die. And he's rehearsing for the people of Israel the laws of God. And when he comes to chapter 28, uh, he is showing that these, this mo- uh, Mosaic covenant, this covenant of law, which is called the Old Covenant in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. It's the Old Covenant. It's the covenant that's being contrasted in the book of Hebrews with the New Covenant. So this is a very important covenant to the people of Israel and to our understanding here. But it is a conditional covenant. God made a promise to Israel. If they would do such and such, He would bless them. But if they broke those promises, He would curse them. And Deuteronomy 28 says that very clearly. Look at these verses with me. Verse 1, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings, now I circled in my Bible every time the word blessed or blessings show up, and it's a lot. It says, All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneeling bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out and so forth. He keeps on going down that line. If they obey God, he will bless them. And notice the blessings are largely physical in nature. He is going to take care of them physically. They're going to have a, a, just a miraculously wonderful world to live in if they bless him, if they obey him, they will be blessed. But we go over to chapter, the same chapter, verse 15, and he goes the opposite direction with curses. And again, I circle the word cursed everywhere I find it in this section. And again, it's a lot. He says in verse 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe all of his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Now notice how he just basically uh, says the same thing he did earlier about blessings, but now it's cursings. Verse 16, Cursed you shall be in the city, and cursed you shall be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneeling bowl. Cursed shall be your offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall be when you go out. And the Lord will send among, uh, upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke, and all you undertake to do until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you have forsaken me. Blessings and cursings. If you obey, blessings. If you disobey, cursings. That was the Mosaic Covenant. It was a covenant, a conditional covenant that the people of Israel uh, were under from about 1400 B.C. 
to the uh, ascension of Jesus Christ, about 30 to 33 AD, and we're not exactly sure, but somewhere in there. So for over 1,400 years, the people of Israel were under this Mosaic covenant of law. Then we go to 2 Samuel. We're going up to 2 Samuel, chapter 7, and here we come to another very important covenant, the, the Davidic covenant, a covenant with David. Second Samuel chapter 17, and notice here uh, verses 4 on down, that uh, if, as you notice that, you will notice I have the wrong book, I think. Well, again, where is it? Huh? Oh, chapter 7, not 17. Look at your notes, Gary. Okay. I knew it was there somewhere. I just read it this morning. Chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. And here we have this Davidic covenant, which guarantees Israel a king and a kingdom perpetually. It says here in verse 11. Let's, go, let's drop down to verse 11, the latter half of the verse. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make you a, a house for you. When your days are complete, speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you. And you will come forth from you, and I will establish this kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. A promise to, to David that in his descendants will follow him. There would always be a king over Israel from David's lineage. Ultimately, that is fulfilled in Christ. Christ will sit on David's throne, and he will rule over the kingdom age as uh, from David's throne and he will be the king over Israel. So there's five Old Testament covenants. We're now moving into one more, and that's the new covenant that we'll be talking about today. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 30 to 33, especially chapter 31. But we're going back to our passage in Hebrews because it's almost quoted verbatim in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. And that's where we want to go today. This is a covenant that God made with the people of Israel. It's a covenant that promises them many physical blessings and also spiritual blessings, including a new heart and the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And we'll be looking at that. As we come back to the passage, I was mentioned that, that the New Testament was not always called the New Testament. The church father, Origen, who is not one of our favorites, uh, named it the New Testament or the New Covenant. And so we had, he, he thought the Old Covenant was the Old Testament. The New Testament was the New Covenant. So he used those words and they've stuck ever since. So we know when we say the New Testament, what we're talking about, that, that goes back to the church father origin back in the, about the second century. The covenant that we're going to look at now, this new covenant, is mentioned in a few places in the New Testament. Jesus mentions it. Paul mentions it. Uh, but it's never fleshed out what it means and what it means to us, what it meant originally. None of that is fleshed out in anything but the book of Hebrews. So once again, Hebrews is unique. As we've been working our way through this book, time after time after time, the book of Hebrews is bringing information to us, valuable information to us. It's found nowhere else. And so what a powerful and useful book this is. And so the book of Hebrews is going to talk to us about this new covenant. And there's two things that we're going to try to do this week and next. One, we want, we, first of all, we want to understand what the new covenant is especially in the Old Testament context, as is given. 
And then we want to discover what does it mean to us today? How, what relationship does the new covenant have to the church age saints, to Christians today? That second issue will be our subject next week. We're going to look at how it relates to us next week uh, in that message. But today we're going to look, first of all, today at the actual new covenant, what it meant originally and somewhat what it means uh, for us as well. So let's begin to look at that. What do we know about the new covenant? Now now we're actually moving into the heart of the message. All that was introduction, so uh, you should have that information. I hope that's helpful to you. Let's take a look here. First of all, we know the time. We know the time. He says in, in verse seven, into verse 7, For if that's the first covenant, now he's speaking there, the Mosaic covenant, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for, to salt for a second covenant. There would have been no need of a new covenant if the old covenant got the job done. What was the problem with the old covenant? Verse 8, for finding fault with them, not it. There was nothing wrong with the old covenant. It was the words of God. It was the commandments of God. It reflected the very nature of God. The problem was with the people who could not keep the dictates, the commandments of the old covenant, finding fault with them. The law then, as I just said, was a conditional covenant. It's a conditional contract. If both parties kept up their end, all would be well. Now we know that God kept up his end. We know that God kept his word, his promises, but the people of Israel did not. If, I, if you were to contract me to paint the outside of your house, or the inside, I don't care, for $5,000, all would be well as long as I painted your house and you paid me $5,000. Actually, that's not true. If I painted your house, you would have to have it repainted again. It would be a disaster. But let's pretend that I could do it right. I did it for, you contracted me, and then I did it, and you paid me. Done deal. If either side reneges, then the contract cannot go through. And that's what we have with the Mosaic Covenant. God made a promise, a bunch of promises. They, he'd never reneged on his promises, but they did on theirs. They could not keep these. And so ultimately, after eight centuries of the people of Israel living in defiance against God, eight centuries of that with only periodic times in which they obeyed him, finally God sent them into exile as he promised he would do in the passage we read a moment ago, and they, and they never did come back as a free nation since that time. But going back to our passage, so when is this new covenant coming into effect? He said, verse, uh, in, this, in this verse 8, he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. This is a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, in which Jeremiah, inspired by God, writes this down. And this promise says, after the day, behold, days are coming. That means that this covenant was not in place when Jeremiah was alive. That was 600 years before Christ. And it was still future. Okay? So it was not, it did not go into effect during the Old Testament era. And so there is a day that would come later on when it would. It says then after those days. Now I want to go back. I know I'm moving it around a lot, but this is the next to last time I'm going to do it. But I'm going to go back to Ezekiel chapter 36. David read this to us just a moment ago. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is another picture of the new covenant. 
And it's very, very important to our understanding of what the new covenant means. And we'll look at this more intensely next week probably. But I do want to read a few, the same verses Dave read because this is such an important section. What is the content of this new covenant and when does it take place? And I'm, so this is going to be double duty here because I'm not going to, later on I want to come back to it, but I don't want to turn there. I want you to remember what we're reading. So get your mind in gear for a minute and think about that. Verse 24 of chapter 36, and for I will take you from the nations and gather you from the lands and bring you to your own land. Okay, when is the new covenant going to go into effect? When Israel is regathered into the land. It's very clearly here saying that. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Now, this is the part I want you to remember. What is he going to give them? He's going to give them a new heart and put, my, and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I give your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. And he goes on there. And so we have this interlacing of physical blessings, physical uh, things that God's going to do for them, bringing them back to the land. And, uh, and give them great produce along with spiritual blessings. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to put the spirit within, within them. And they're going to walk in his ways. So we have the overlapping of two wonderful things that are going to happen somewhere in the future. When this was, when this was put in the Bible. Now we can go back to our passage. The timing was yet future when Jeremiah prophesied. The author of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah, and he doesn't say anything different than that. He says, behold, days are coming. Now, when do those days come? Come back next week and you'll find out. You're not going to find out today. Second thing about the new covenant is the signatories. Who, who signed off on this deal? And we find that also in the same verse, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, only God makes this command, this contract. This is an unconditional covenant. God is making a promise to his people, Israel, and he says to them, this is what I will do. It doesn't matter what you will do. It doesn't matter whether you obey. It doesn't matter if you walk with me. It doesn't matter. I will do this. It's a promise that only God signs up for at this point in time. The old covenant of law was an agreement between God and the nation of the, of the people. They both signed on the dotted line. God says, here's what I will do if you obey. Israel says, I will obey. One of the most interesting and, I think, laughable verses in the Old Testament is in Exodus 24.3. You don't need to turn there. Exodus 24.3, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments and some of the accompanying laws... Here's what the people of Israel said. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know how laughable this is. In verse 20, chapter 24, verse 3, it says, The people say, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. <laughs> yeah, they did that real, real well. Anything you said, God, we're going to do it. We promise. And then they broke the laws almost immediately 
uh, even before the, the ink was dried, although there weren't any inks on the stones, but uh, even before the chisels had, had stopped, uh, they had already broken the laws and got, and by chapter 32, they were worshiping idols. It's amazing. They promised they didn't keep their promise. This covenant at this point is kind of like a last will and, and testament. You know, we, uh, you ought to have a will. If you, have, if you don't have a will, you should get a will. That's, that's free advice here. You don't have to take that. But you ought, to, you ought to do that. This is like a will and testament. Here, here, here's, what, here's where I'm going to leave my stuff. Here's who I'm leaving it to. Here's, what, here's the deeds here, right here. That's kind of what's happening here. God is such, when, God, when, when you die, you have just signed the contract and the, whatever gets your stuff, gets your stuff. God is saying, I'm going to sign on the dotted line and here's what you get, whether you want it or not. Okay, this is what, he's the signatory. Who are the recipients? Thirdly, the recipients, he says very clearly, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is important for our investigation because of two reasons. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. This tells us, first of all, that the nation will be reunited. God promised to bring them back to the land, but the nation is going to be reunited. When Jeremiah prophesied these words, when God used him to write them down, Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, were already in captivity. They had already been dispersed. They're in exile. They would never come back. To this day, they've never come back. Even in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, when some of the people came back to the land, they didn't come back. The nation of Judah, the southern tribes, were still intact, although they were under attack at that time. And, and they would soon also go into Babylonian captivity. But now it says that he's making a contract, a covenant with the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. They're both going to come back as one nation. So they're going to be reunited in the land that God gives them. The second thing, this is important to note, this covenant is not made with the church. He's not making a promise here to the church. He's making a promise to the nation of Israel. And that's going to play into what with the meaning of this whole covenant as we look at it more carefully next week. God is declaring this to the Jews. They are his everlasting people. Even if they reject him, he will never reject them. Extremely important to know that. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are all about the fact that God will never renege on his promises to Israel. Read it sometime. Then going back to our passage, verse 9, we have a, uh, the fourth thing we look at, and that's the failure under the old covenant. Verse 9 says this, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the, uh, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. We already have seen under the old covenant the people failed because they couldn't keep it. But Why? Why couldn't they keep these Old Testament laws? The laws were good. They were perfect. They, were, they reflected the character of God. Why couldn't they keep it? Because they had no power to keep it. I want to go to one more verse. This is my last time to take you out of the text. But you just have to see Galatians 3.21. Anybody that doesn't know Galatians 3.21 is doomed to live a life of legalism. And you don't want to do that. Galatians 3.21. What a powerful verse. It, it most often is ignored. 
Now look at this verse carefully with me. He says this, is the, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Talking about the Abrahamic covenant versus the Mosaic covenant. Getting a, deeper, a little deep in the woods here. Hope you're staying with me. The Mosaic covenant did not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. The promises weren't negated. May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. You get that? You miss this verse, you miss Christianity. The Christian life anyway. You will never become what God wants you to be by keeping the law. Because the law could not, never has been able to, and never will be able to impart life. It can tell you how to live. It can show you and reflect the nature of God. But it cannot impart life. It lacks no power to do so. And yet vast swatches of Christianity throughout time have lived legalistically, believing if they had enough rules, enough regulations, and if the Bible didn't supply them, we'll make up our own. We'll add to the Bible a bunch of regulations and rules and and principles and whatever to live by, and that will make us holy. God says it will not. There is no law, not even the law of God, that can impart life, that can give you true spiritual life. You're barking up the wrong tree. If you head that direction, the law was objective standard. It reflected the very nature of God, but it could not bring life. A few weeks ago, Marsha and I were going to take our grandkids to uh, Brown County, Indiana State Park, where we had a cabin reserved there, and we were going to enjoy some winter weather and got time together. And then that cold snap came in about 20. About you know, wind, wind chill, the, the people on the TV are saying, wicked weather, you know, all that stuff. When 800 below zero, that kind of stuff, you know. So it was very, very cold, but we were going to go anyway. So we got the van all packed up, ready to go. And I went out to, uh, to go pick up the kids. I went out to turn on the van. You love that sound? And it was in the garage, so I thought I was fine. But it would not start. Here we were going nowhere. Well, I had to get the battery replaced. Found out the battery was original, eight years old. Got my money's worth on that one. Uh, but here is this van, this you know, great technology, powerful engine, really good interior. To I took the kids to Brown County. All this good stuff. It's it's good stuff. But it, I couldn't get it out of the garage because I had no power. And that's a whole lot of what Christianity is is like sometimes for people. It's what the Jews were. They had all this apparatus. They had all this stuff. They had all these details. They had all these laws. They couldn't get out of the spiritual garage because they had no power to do so. Something had to enable them to live up to God's standards. What was that something? Well, that's the new covenant he's talking about. Now we're ready to move into the content of the new covenant. And there's three outstanding features as we go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Three outstanding features of the new covenant that I want to mention. First of all, it's internal. Verse 10 says this, for, I'll make, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws into their minds, I'll write them on their hearts, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The old covenant was engraved in stone. It was, it was a written code full of laws, commandments and rituals and sacrifices, none of which would change anybody's heart. 
A believer in the Old Testament was not given the Holy Spirit, and they were not given the power to obey. It was, they had no inward motivation. They had external motivations, however. Uh, they, if they lived obediently, then God blessed them. That's external. If they lived disobediently, God would judge them and curse them. That's, that's external uh, motivation. A few on the basis of self-control and wise living and the knowledge of the truth uh, were outwardly motivated to live for God. Chapter 11 of this book will identify a number of people who lived that way, a number of Old Testament saints. But most of them didn't uh, do very well, as we know, because they reaped the, and they reaped the consequences of their sin. Outward motivation has some benefit but it does not change the heart. For everyone here who's ever raised a child or been around small children, you know that external motivation is necessary. Some years ago, Ted Tripp came out with a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart, which is an excellent book and tells us that we need to look at the heart of our children, not just the behavior. Very, very important concept, very important book. But when, a, when you're a year-and-a-half-old kid is ready to stick a fork in the light socket... Or the, or the outlet, you don't pull out your Bible and say, you know, God says we should glorify God in all things, and I want, to sh- I want to shepherd your heart and shape you into that. No, you immediately go on the offense, offensive, and you rip them away from that, and you tell them, don't do that again. Why? Because you're hateful? You're mean-spirited? No, because you love your kid, and you don't want them to die with a fork in the socket, Right? Uh, on the positive side, you're, are, 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 let's, let's say you're feeding them some of that great Gerber peas and stuff, you know, squash, stuff you would never eat yourself. And you're trying to put it in the mouth of your kid, and your kid keeps spitting it out. So you might need to use some, some external motivation. You trick them, first of all. You play airplane with them. Or whatever else. You get a spoonful of that stuff in their mouth. And then a little help might be to close their mouth up just a little bit. So they can't spit on you. Now, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble with anybody. But they can't spit it back at you. And eventually they're going to swallow. Okay? A little external motivation doesn't hurt. And then you can do some external positive reinforcement. You pat them on the head. Say, way to go, girl. What a wonderful thing you've done. And I, I just, wonderful. Let's do it again. A little external motivation uh, is in order sometimes. And it does work. Matter of fact, the book of Proverbs is a whole book about that. The book of Proverbs is taking the laws and principles of God and telling us how to live wise lives. If you want to live wisely, if you want to do well in this world, read the book of Proverbs and apply those wise principles to your life and you can live a really good life, even if you're not a Christian. Because those are the principles that God gives us. They make sense. They're they're in line with how the universe runs that God created. So the book of Proverbs is marvelous at that. But the Old Testament people had the book of Proverbs. And they still lived godless lives. Why? Because they didn't have the power they needed to live up to the standards that God gave them. They needed something more. And so our passage says, The day will come when I will give them a new heart and a new mind and so forth. Remember Ezekiel? I told you I wouldn't go back there. But remember Ezekiel? I'll give them a new heart. Not a heart of flesh, a, a true heart. I will give them my, the heart they need to have. 
uh, the other way around, but whatever. Uh, they, they, I'll give them the Spirit. I'll give them the Holy Spirit in their life. They'll be energized from the inside, internally, to live for God. I love a little story by Christian Bernard. You remember him? He was the first guy to do a heart transplant. South African surgeon. Nobody had ever done this before. His first patients didn't live very long, but ultimately they got the technique down really well. One of the people that did live and did well was, a, was another doctor, and Christian Bernard was talking with him one day and said, would you like to see your old heart? And he said, I would be fascinated by that. So they went back to uh, the laboratory, wherever they were, and in a big jar was the heart of this guy that he'd taken out. He took it down and gave it to him. The doctor looked at it. They talked about the techniques and the details and this, that, and the other. And then the, the, the doctor said this, so this is my old heart that gave me so much trouble. Now on a spiritual level, if I could apply that, that's exactly where we are. This is the old heart that has given us so much trouble. The Lord's going to replace it with a new heart. Look at the second feature, going back to verse 10 and 11. Second feature, direct knowledge of God. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. In the Old Testament, people didn't know God directly. And they they knew God through the prophets, through the priesthood, uh, through the prophecies and the prophets and so forth. But they didn't have a direct access to God. It is true that they were his, God was theirs and he was their people. And they were his people. But at the same time, they, they did not know God in a direct way because there were limits. That's one of the principles of the book of Hebrews. He now allows us to draw near to God. And they could not do that directly in the Old Testament. Even today, there's some limits, right? We don't know God as we should know God, as we would like to know God. There are limits on how well we can know God. We know Him through the Word, where the Holy Spirit lives in us, and so forth, but there's still limits. But the day is coming when he's going to put his laws in our minds. The day is coming when he's going to write them on our hearts. The day is coming that we will be his and and God will be our God and we will know him. It says here that uh, in verse uh, 11, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Now that's that's a powerful statement. It's a strange statement. They will all know him. Not just some, they will all know him. That's not happening today. That's happening sometime under the new covenant. There will need no teachers at that time. Nobody needs to stand up and teach the word to them. I'll be out of a job at that time. There's no need for people like me. The, The word will be taught internally to them. And then finally, there's complete forgiveness. The final feature, complete forgiveness. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In the Old Testament, they were, the Israelites were physically delivered from Egypt by God and by the power of the, the blood of the lambs that they shed, uh, the blood of, and so forth. And the Passover feast was the memorial on that occasion. In the new, under the New Covenant, there is spiritual deliverance from sin and death, and the blood of the Lamb of God is as Linda sang for us so well this morning, uh, is our symbol. The Lord, at the Lord's Supper, remember? The Lord said, this is, this is 
The new covenant in my blood. This is what Jesus is talking about. Under the old covenant, sin could never be totally forgiven. Uh, It could be covered, but the guilt could never be fully taken away because there was no sufficiency in the blood of animals to take away the sins of the people. And therefore, their full forgiveness was never there. I'm going to read to you a poem of sorts. It's a hymn. And the reason I'm doing it is because it's a powerful hymn. But it's also written by someone very special. His name is William Cooper. And if you have the manuscript, I misspelled his name. It's with a W. But nevertheless, he was a friend of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And he was a poet laureate of England back in the 1700s. But he was a man who had driven himself literally insane because of guilt. That's not a metaphor. He was in a sane asylum. And this is a poem that reflected his insanity and how he came out. And it was a song they sang in their churches. Okay? Listen to the words. Sin enslaved my many years and led me bound and blind till at length a thousand fears came swarming over my mind. Where said I in deep distress will these sinful pleasures end? How shall I secure my peace and make the Lord my friend? Friends and ministers said much the gospel to enforce, but my blindness still was such, I chose a legal course. Much I fasted, watched and strove, scarce could would show my face abroad, feared almost to speak or, or move, a stranger still to God. Thus afraid to trust his grace, long time did I rebel, till despairing in my case, down at his feet I fell. Now listen to this. Then my stubborn heart he broke, and subdued me to his sway. By a simple word he spoke, thy sins are done away. That is the power of the gospel. Our sins are done away. That is what the New Testament is teaching us here. That is what the New Covenant is teaching us here. God had placed us under, his people under a system of regulations and rules and laws. It was perfect. They were not. And therefore God says, I will give you a new covenant. A new means of dealing with me as, su- of, as such that you can live not only according to what I give you, but through the power that I give you. And we're going to talk about that next week. Lord, we thank you now for what we've learned today about the new covenant as well as the other covenants. Lord, I pray that these things are helpful to our thinking and our minds today. And, and Lord, as we contemplate all you've done for us, and Lord, especially for the forgiveness of our sins, what a marvelous truth it is. That now we are truly free from the guilt of sin. That our sins have been covered and taken away by the blood of Christ. And Lord, we cannot thank you enough for that wonderful truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.